on the Dallas Opera Network. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by Oliver Camacho. All right. On the show, Oliver and I go inside the huddle with Eric Smith and Miguel Cantu from American Baroque Opera Company to have them tell us what is the only human endeavor more expensive than war. Their pandemic season wraps up with a puppet Don Quixote, and we'll learn about their return to live theater plus two-minute drill. If you plan on going to the Met, you better plan on having your proof of vaccination in addition to your ascot and opera glasses. If you're watching on TDO, you don't need to be vaccinated. I do recommend it, but you can also subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher. Just favorite the show on Apple Podcasts. Oliver Camacho, I feel like we're empty nesters. That's okay. In honor of uh, some historic event that's actually happening today, um, we are taking on our feminine personas. I am Olivia. And you are going to be Georgina because um, as we speak, probably uh, for the first time, there's an all-female broadcast crew for a major league baseball game, an MLB game. It's the Orioles against the Rays, the Baltimore Orioles against the Tampa Bay Rays. And uh, Melanie Newman will be handling the play-by-play duties. Sarah Langs will be providing analysis. And Alana Rizzo will be doing reporter duties uh for the game between before the game and then there's a pre-game um with Heidi Watney and Lauren Gardner. So it's 2021 and this is a first and it shouldn't be but it is so we are marking it <laughs> on Opera Box Score. I just love that. I would love to be watching this baseball game right now and just hear an all female chorus of sports voices in my ears the downside of course is that i would have to watch the orioles play baseball (laughs) uh ashley says hey props to luke prokop he's an nhl prospect uh and has just come out as the nhl's first gay this happened recently of course in the nfl it's happened in the nba already but this was a barrier that had not been broken in the nhl ever which i think is pretty darn cool Let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Established in 2017, the American Baroque Opera Company in Dallas stages intimate productions of operas from the Baroque era and on period instruments. In addition to presenting works of well-known composers, including Handel, Vivaldi, and Purcell, they've resurrected operas of lesser-known Baroqueers. Artistic Director Eric Smith and Executive Director Miguel Cantu join us from Dallas.
countertenor deluxe Kimon Mara, friend of the show, singing an aria from a rare opera by Vivaldi called Montezuma, and that aria, Brilleran per noi più belle. Uh, he performed this for the American Broke Opera Company uh, in Dallas, Texas. And our guests are... Eric Smith and Miguel Cantu, the, I guess you guys are the co-directors of this Baroque opera company. You would say one are, one is the general director, one is the executive director. Who knows what that really means? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm artistic director and he's executive. So okay. yeah, yeah, we have our... <laughs> Very good. So yeah. that's Eric speaking. Eric, you want to give us a little institutional history of the American Baroque opera company? Sure, uh, my pleasure. So we are based in Dallas and we incorporated in 2017. Um, we did our first sort of small show. We did an opera cabaret um, at the beginning of our 2017-2018 season. And we did our first fully staged show in the spring of 2018, which was Handel's Alcina. And we've been going strong since. So we're coming up on our fifth anniversary season. We're excited to share with everyone what we're doing. Fantastic. Again, both of you, welcome to the show. Talk me super quickly through the opera landscape in Dallas and how you fit into that. Great. Um, yeah, Dallas has a really great opera company, Dallas Opera. Um, We've heard of them. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they, you know, they do a lot of great shows. Um, they don't do a lot of Baroque opera, and uh, Baroque opera has always been a dream of mine. Ever since I was in college, one of my professors asked me, um, what do you want to do you know, with your life? And I said, I want to do Baroque opera. And she said, oh, you have to move to Europe. And so mm -hmm. I thought, well, I guess we have to start our own. <laughs> and well, uh, Eric, you play cello. I do. And Miguel, you are a violinist and a violist. Uh huh. Yeah, viola first and then violin. Actually, okay. not many viola yeah. parts in baroque operas. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> when that happens, I'll I'll move over to the violin section. Yeah. <laughs> um. So, do you both perform in the band uh, for your shows? Yeah, we do. When there's when there's a part for me, I'm in there. Um, and I, I mean, for me, I always, I used to have a company that fell flat on its face after a couple of years, but, um, to perform and to manage, uh, is always, was always to me very difficult. And my performance always suffered because there's so many things that people don't think about. I mean, George produces opera himself. There's so many moving parts with the show and to have to also participate in the making of the art, you know, on the day of, I think is, um, is a lot. Yes, it's, yeah, a full, it is. it's a full-time job. <laughs> yeah, it's sure. it's not the most, you know, it seems a little glamorous when you're in the pit playing, having the time of your life, but then, hey, who's going to drive the U-Haul truck, you know, <laughs> to to the, to put this, you know, to put away the set? Yeah, and to move the harpsichord. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, we're going to talk about the past briefly before we move into the present. Kaman Mara was one of your catch hires catch castings what, what was that first show with him the first show we did with him was montezuma and we were actually both involved in a summer pay to sing um thing and uh he came in and he was singing an aria from 
uh, Chesede and I heard him sing and I thought, you're hired. I don't know what for what, but you are hired. <laughs> um, and then it came up. It happened that uh, the Montezuma has a male soprano part in it, which, as you know, it's difficult to find uh, males who can sing in that range. And, you know, I mean, Key can hit a high C like it's nobody's business. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I felt like the role was made for him. And it's the same, actually, for this next season coming up. There's a male soprano part um, that's that's perfect for him. So we're going to see him again. That's awesome. Here we are in the present. We're in this pandemic. Is it over? Is it not over? Nobody knows. What we do know is that the arts, the performing arts and opera have changed dramatically. How did ABOC pivot during this pandemic? And as you've done digital and virtual work, what, what have you found to be the, the pros and cons of doing Baroque rep in that form? Miguel? Uh, well, we we did. We decided to do an all-digital season. Um, we produced, it was called ABOC at Home. And, um, you know, it was going into it, we almost had no idea exactly what we were doing and what we were going to do until it was just like presented right to us, i.e. the very first day of recording. <laughs> it was things like, you know, video recording and, and like having like live versus studio was we were on a different planet. And it was a tough pivot, but we did it. I mean, you know, we, we were able to come up with some really awesome productions. We all learned um, this year how to become, you know, sound editors and video editors and how to yeah. optimize things and, you know, how to use a green screen, you know. And yeah. <laughs> I mean, those aren't our, I mean, I work a lot in Baroque repertoire. Those aren't our skills. Those are not things exactly. that are um, natural for us. Those are not, I mean, technology and Baroque music, unless you're Anthony Roth Costanzo, they usually <laughs> don't work well together. I mean, Baroque yeah. music is all about acoustic. It's all about fabric. It's all about, you know, movement. It's all about being seduced by like everything you can put on a stage and yeah. all the ornaments, you know, in the aria and all the beautiful plucked instruments and, you know, quiet plucked instruments don't sound great um, over you know, over Zoom, you know, it's just, yeah. that's just a fact, you know? <laughs> yep. Yeah. There's, and there's, well, there's such a, there's such a, like a, sorry, there's such a like visual element to mm -hmm. opera. Yeah. Um, and, you know, with every opera that we go into, it's like, well, what kind of spectacle can we create? And we didn't want it to just be, you know, single shot camera on, on a stage, you know, that type of look we wanted to give our audience, you know, something special that they were going to, watch want to watch more than just one time yeah um and, and something that was gonna be like al always always interesting and always available yes yeah. so to, we to our audience we came up with in the fall three shorter things to do um which was you know manageable with the time we had right after the pandemic started we didn't know if we were gonna have a season so we did three short films the first being monteverdi's tancredi and um that show not a baroque opera by the way yeah exactly <laughs> um so we have the scene of tancredi so we did just a short um video and the production team decided 
they did this really beautiful element to it as a Dia de los Muertos, um, since the story is sort of talking about remembrance of the dead. Um, and it was really beautifully shot. Um, it was a learning curve with the sound, trying to figure out how to do, you know, live singing and music while they're doing acting. Um, because we, you know, we weren't trying the lip sync thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we did, um, Handel's Lucrezia, which is, you know, one woman show. And, um, the soprano who also came up with the whole concept did a really fantastic job. Um, and, you know, these are ways for us to push um, Baroque opera into sort of more accessible ways for people. And that's sort of what one of our missions as an opera company. Well, your uh, pandemic season is drawing to a close. And right now we are anticipating the release of the Telemann Don Quixote. Can you tell us about how that production is going to look? Miguel, you want to talk about that one? Sure. Yeah. So... This one's going to be um, not an all-human cast, but an all-animal cast. Um, we have uh, our Don Quixote as as a lion, um, kind of. It's kind of you know, with the lion as a theme in Don Quixote, um, and that. So like uh, a, a actual lion, puppet. Puppets. Puppet. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These are puppets, not actual lion. Puppets. <laughs> yes, I was puppets, waiting yeah, for yeah. puppets. Oh, That's sorry. awesome. And this is where the yeah. green screen comes in, presumably, right? Yeah, our, yep, yep, yep. The uh, video production guys did a lot of, I mean, basically like 100% green screen effects. That makes, that just gives me night sweats hearing about like the amount of <laughs> editing and tech that goes into that. Boy, do I feel your pain. We had a conversation with um, the uh, opera director of Northwestern University's Beanin School of Music, and um, we knew that this project was in the works called Orfeo Remote, uh, where he gave you know the students basically instructions to film themselves, and they all like learned their part and then lip synced to themselves singing, and you know the orchestra was also all done virtually, and it was, and you know so this guy Joachim Schromberger, he in the end was uh he had whatever thousands of assets that he had to you know cut together and turn into a webisode opera i mean george did you have anything to do with that editing process or i didn't thank the lord that sort of stuff (laughs) freaks freaks me out guys as we move on to the coming season then first up is your first french piece of repertoire am i right um, I, it's our first full French Baroque opera. We had done um, a small chamber opera by Charpentier um, in the past, but this is the first fully um, full, you know, Baroque opera that we're uh, French Baroque opera that we're doing. Um, and I think it's a it's a really good one to step into. People will recognize some of the melodies, um, and I think for people who don't know French Baroque opera, but love opera, this is a great way for them to be introduced with, you know, trios and duets and choruses and, you know, that kind of thing that uh, I think people will really love. And it's a North American debut also. So our audiences, or at least my audience, knows that I'm crazy for the French Baroque rep. (laughs) Um, And it has so many specific challenges, which in a way makes it you know, impossible for regular opera companies to do. 
And you would think that because of the vocal writing, it's like the perfect thing to put on at a university, but there is no really faculty out there that, you know, there's enough people that understand the style that they could teach those students how to sing in French Baroque style. And then you have the dancing element and, you know, assuming, you know, we're talking about, you know, 18th century, um, there's always spectacle in these shows. Like they bring out everything um, and yeah, they're just very grand pieces. How are you as a micro but growing opera company, how are you going to negotiate all of those challenges of the French repertoire? Yeah, we are doing it, um, our, sort of the grand aspect of it and the visual spectacle of it is we're approaching it in a different way. So um, traditionally, you would have gone to a big hall, you would have seen, you know, 30, 40, at least 30, 40 people on stage, huge orchestra, um, you know, even just the instrumentation itself is uh, very different than most Baroque opera, if you do Italian or, you know, Handel or something, um, you know, we talked about not very many viola parts. Um, it's actually Ooh, just French Baroque. Yeah. <laughs> in no. French Baroque, actually, it's different. It's a lot of viola parts. There are actually three different viola parts. And winds. There's lots of winds in this. Choir. Yes, exactly. Lots of winds. And so it's, it's a very rich sound. And we are actually doing what they did at the uh, Paris Opera. Um, we're doing the same instrumentation, but we're cutting everything in half. So instead of everything doubled or quadrupled, we're doing it, um, the orchestra as it would have been done just in half. Um, so we're, you're getting still the same sort of sound and rich textures. Um, and because we're doing it in a much smaller, more intimate way, um, it, you know, we've cut the orchestra in half because, you know, it, an orchestra the size of Lully's or Marais, um, would be enormous for a small company like us. Um, and the visual aspect of it, you know, we are including some dance, but in order to keep the, the story flowing, we've, we're cutting some of those dance numbers. Um, it's, for us, it's less of an opera ballet and more of an opera. And, you know, the baseline is we want to tell the story and tell the story well. A lot of those French operas, they were interrupted by lots of ballet scenes. And so we'll include some ballet that, um, helps the story move, um, and then cut some of it that sort of stops the story. Um, and then costuming and things, we're doing a little bit different take. We always like to surprise our audience. You know, when they watched our Dido video, um, it was modern glam goth, um, setting. And, you know, sometimes we do Alcina was broke costumes. Um, when we did Montezuma, they were very sort of, um, superhero-esque costumes. Um, this one, the theme is Edwardian. And uh, Miguel, do you want to talk a little bit about the visual aspect of this show? Yeah, sure. I'm so excited for this one. We're going to do um, almost like a film noir type of vibe to it, where all the costumes are going to be black and white or gray. We're going to do oversized projections in black and white. The makeup. Um, is going to be like a actually a drag queen inspired um, makeup look where everybody's done in grayscale and it, in person it looks like you're watching a black and white film. Um, it's a really really cool effect. Um, when you know one thing that we love th that we've always done is having a very intimate feel um, where 
people feel super immersed in the opera. Um, and, and yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about the staging for, for our Marais. When Again, you said, so this is when you I'll, said Edwardian, I was hoping it was being like Downton Abbey, like Lady Crawley and Matthew <laughs> <Yes>. Crawley. <laughs> right, Bridgerton. A little bit. Bridgerton. It's like yeah. if, if Tim Burton had done Downton Abbey. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> this is again Alcyon that we're, we're talking about archaic language huge spectacle dance in an unfamiliar style this gives me even more night smoke sweats than a green screen <laughs> we're talking about Asus as uh, a handle serenata uh, and there are three big roles in that but there's also the Damon um, yes exactly Damon actually sings more than Polyphemus <laughs> oh, that's true. Well, yeah. Sometimes people assign Damon's aria to Corridon or something like that. Like, yes, yeah. yeah. Well, it in sort of the storyline. I'm I'm still grasping whether I should do this or not. But in the second act, it seems unusual that Damon, who is the confidant of Asus, would then go to Polyphemus and sort of encourage him to get the lady. Which is and the role is actually for Corridon that that aria in Act Two. Would you gain the tender creature? Exactly. Which is and, a showstopper. It's like one of those things yes. that we learn when we're in high school and we're college, and it's like, oh, it's cute. But then, like when you have somebody who really knows how to sing it, sing it, correct. It can stop the show. It's so exactly. beautiful. So. so that's the one that you know, um, sort of story wise, works to have Corridon sing it. Um, and you could just pluck somebody from the chorus who's really good and <laughs> and have them, you know, be Corridon. So we're we're still wrestling with whether or not we want to do that with the storyline. Um, and then your season concludes in 2022 with an opera that I actually love so much, and I've oh, never good. seen. I've never seen it stage hey. before, but Aww. I've listened to it since I was in college because it's so gay. <laughs> <laughs> Yep. <laughs> and I remember yes. I, I had the, um, I didn't own a recording at that point, but I would borrow one from the library. And it was the old, I think, Deutsch gramophone or Phillips, I forget what, but it was like two Greek boys like throwing a discus or something like that <laughs> <laughs> with just like a toga, you know. Uh, this is Mozart's Apollo and Hyacinth. I think he was 10 or 8. I forget. 11. He was, he was okay, 11 yeah. years old. Okay. Yep. And it it sounds it sounds like Mozart when he was thirty. It's yeah. you would never guess that he was eleven years old when he wrote this opera. It's I mean the music is absolutely stunning. It sounds so mature for somebody who's eleven. Yeah. Um, and I actually didn't know the opera until maybe what seven months ago. <laughs> um, and Miguel happened upon it, and we you know we were discussing sort of the theme of this coming season metamorphosis and sort of operas that would fit into that theme. And this one clearly fits, fits the theme though the sort of the gay element of it, the story um, they change it in um, the librettist changed the story. So the original story is that Apollo falls in love with Hyacinth um, who's a boy and, you know, they did it at uh, the Benedictine University. So they changed the story to Apollo falling in, in love with Melia, who is Hyacinth's sister. Yeah, give me a break. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I wanted to mention this because um, for those of you who, I mean, you, many of you who are listening to this will not have heard of this countertenor. His name is Michael Skarkey. And uh, I got to see Michael Skarkey as he was just getting his sea legs as a opera singer. Um, 
he looks like Spider-Man. I mean, he is one of the most gorgeous men I've ever laid my <laughs> eyes on in any <laughs> genre of art making. You know, he's just a beautiful man. And then you hear him sing and you're like, no way. <laughs> There's no way that that sound comes out of that man. Yes. I mean, he, um, yeah, he looks like a Hollywood leading man mm-hmm. um, that you would see in an action film. And then he opens his mouth and he's a countertenor with this absolutely beautiful and delicate voice it's a very effeminine a feminine sound yes. but in like the best possible androgynous like this exactly. is this is the opposite of toxic masculinity you know correct yeah uh, <laughs> even though if you follow him on social media he's actually pretty bro <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah so and yeah, this we... is gonna be this is gonna be your chance to bring back um kimon in the correct. very difficult soprano role of hyacinth uh, I remember there's this one aria that's just, it's like nonstop coloratura, like just start it yes. and like see you six minutes later, you know? Yeah the, yeah, the opera starts and it's the first big aria and it's like seven and a half minutes of difficult, difficult singing. Yeah. So you don't even get to warm up <laughs> as a singer. You just get in there and sing the most difficult aria. But yeah. if anyone can do it, Kimon can. Yeah, well, I I actually might come down to see that show because um, oh, I good. stand Kimon oh, and I stand Michael and I know there's probably another role and there's like a a father role or something like that in there, yes. a t- tenor yep. or something like that. But correct, like, yep. Yeah, poor guy. He's gonna be. <laughs> he's gonna do great. <laughs> yeah. It's it's hard for every singer to follow Kimon, and unfortunately, <laughs> he gets the first big aria, so everyone has to follow him in that yeah. show. But it's so well written. Um, every aria is just a showstopper. The duet in Act Two is absolutely beautiful, um, and and we also have a set that believe it. You know, this we're we're July, and we already have most of the set built for um, May. So <laughs> yeah, it's taking so up half the it. space in our garage yeah. that we had just <laughs> cleaned out, and then um, like we had no no no, we cleaned out our garage and then. Three, four days later, I call. They don't need like, to know hey. the whole story. <laughs> but, That's what well, well, building an opera company sounds like. I actually, feel you, <laughs> I, feel, I feel you on the. We've garage. done it. <laughs> we've talked, uh, guys. We've talked some past. We've talked some present. Let's talk a little bit of future before we wrap it up. So, wh- what's the trajectory here of A B O C? You guys call it ABOC. Now we know. Yeah, yeah, ABOC. What, what, yeah, yeah. what are the the models? That you're that you're building on, or that you're moving away from, it makes me think of Haymarket, of course, in Chicago, and also Boston Early Music Festival. Yeah. So yeah, um, they both Haymarket um, and and Benf were sort of inspirations for um, us starting this company, but we've sort of moved away from their model, and uh, we just don't we don't want our um, audience to have something, you know, a formula that they expect. We want to keep them on their toes. Um, and a lot of opera is doing that. It's pushing boundaries. And we want to make Baroque opera accessible to people. Um, and so, you know, as beautiful as, you know, doing Baroque sets and Baroque costumes are, we always want to be pushing it in other directions. And so I think models that we're looking toward are probably uh, more toward European models, of the opera houses that do Baroque opera and they do them in different ways, but, um, but doing them in really intimate settings. We think that's 
the best way to experience Baroque opera is to really have it be immersive. And in general, I think that's the way the arts are going. People are really into house concerts. They're really into smaller things. Um, you know, going to a giant opera house where it seats 2000 and watching a Baroque opera isn't, you know, it's, it's very difficult for the stage director to get the story across. Well, so this, one is very, this is a very Baroque problem then. Um, how do you pay for it if you're having such an intimate experience? Uh, lots of fundraising. <laughs> so we've always had, um, from the very beginning, a fantastic orchestra, fantastic singers. Um, that part element was there from the very beginning. And as we grow, we're adding the sort of production elements to it Um to refine the shows in that aspect. And so instead of us doing, um, you know, maybe one or two shows in a really large hall, as our audiences grow, we want to do more performances. So we keep that sort of a small, intimate, immersive feeling. Um, the good thing is that the smaller halls are cheaper <laughs> in, in general. Um, so yeah, but the, you know, the, the idea, I mean, opera is expensive. You, you know, um, was it Voltaire who said the only thing more expensive than opera is war? Um, and it's true. <laughs> it's so true. I'm stealing Miguel, that. Miguel, oh, I God. cut you off. You were, you were about to say, I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, no. That's okay. Yeah. I just wanted to add that, you know, we keep things intimate. Um, one thing, one audience that really appreciates that are the kids. We do a lot of educational outreach and, um, it's, it's easier and the kids, you know, respond. They're not like, you know, yeah, that singer, you know, was like this big from the seats that, you know, we were, that we were at. Or when we actually take it into the schools, it's, it's easier to, you know, to take in a small set. Eric and Miguel, before I let you go, I want to get a little bit of free advice. So uh, at the graduate opera program that I teach in, I need to pick a Handel opera for the fall. I'm a little behind right now. I have two baritones in my class. Help a brother out. What Handel show can I pick to give these baritones something to do? Well, baritones, it's it's difficult because they don't always get the heroic roles in Baroque opera, you know. That's reserved for um, countertenors. <laughs> but um, Cesare does have a great um, baritone role, Aquila. Um, and then a smaller one, Curio, who I don't think he gets to sing any arias, but he gets to be in on some of the action. So... Um, that might be a good one. And I would say in general, uh, don't look at Handel if you're looking for baritone roles. Uh, yes, do French. Well, you tell me French, that second, now. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, it's their basses mostly. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it's the French. Uh, they love the baritones, the French. Yeah, the, and they're actually just called Thai. They're not even called baritones. It's just like that middle that middle voice, you know, speaking. Well, we call baritenors sometimes, yeah. too. <laughs> Oliver, we should hang out more off the show, you know. You, you, know, this is you, you should can... ask me for advice. <laughs> Asking our guests for advice. <laughs> Eric Smith and Miguel Cantu from the American Baroque Opera Company hanging out with us tonight. Any company whose website is just baroqueopera.com is okay by me. Dot As org. .org. .org. Yeah. I'll take either. Uh, org is where you can go to see details for the upcoming Telemann Don Quixote. And check out the, yeah, the puppets. Check out the puppets. 
And uh, definitely join me uh, for Michael Skarki and Kimon Mara uh, next year over there in Dallas. Thank you both. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so, thank much, you so guys. much for having us. Yeah, this is awesome. So great to have those two hanging out on the show with us. I will say those jackets were so cool. I had to take mine off. They're blazers you're talking about? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, those blazers. Are... Blazer. Well, I mean, here this is this is from Uniqlo and is very lightweight, but that was that was some serious swish style. We're still in the doldrums of the all-star game the the most quiet day in sports is the day after the all-star game when there's literally nothing happening at all in sports oliver of course you reminded me the end of this week it starts to pick up yeah and we just had the tour de france uh conclude but uh my french roommate says that by the time you get to like the last few days of the tour de france it's very clear who's gonna win so people stop paying attention (laughs) who knows two minute drill it is right now This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Upper Land this week. Singers have their panties in a bunch, triggered by a recent article about the tenuous Met reopening in the New York Times that led with, quote, the company has reached deta- the company has reached deals with the unions representing its chorus and stagehands. Now, to reopen in September, it needs to make a deal with its musicians end quote clearly there is more news in this article but first things first gray lady choristers are musicians <laughs> whoops speaking of the met the company announced that in order to feel safe and comfortable when returning to the opera house audiences artists and staff will be required to show proof of vaccination to enter the building and if you're not vaccinated you get to cough on placido domingo and anna netrebko Operalia has announced the participants for the 2021 competition held at the Bolshoi Theater in Moscow. Among 34 artists in the contest this October are friends of the show Kiman Mara and Emily Pogorelts. The other 32 are welcome to be friends of the show Furukust. Following the UK government's announcement that social distancing restrictions have been lifted, the Glyndebourne Festival released more tickets to this season's Summer performances previously capped at 50% capacity. All 1,200 seats in the Opera House's auditorium are now available. Update to last week's red card. Opera Australia has stated, quote, due to the extension of the New South Wales government's stay-at-home restrictions and subsequent health orders, we're sadly unable to proceed with the remainder of our winter season at the Sydney Opera House. This includes our productions of Aida, Attila, and Otello. Each production is being postponed to a future season. I don't know if people wanted to see Attila anyway. Fort Worth Opera, led by friend of the show Afton Battle, has unveiled its daring new season. At first glance, their 75th anniversary will be filled with many things that are not actually opera. And dum, 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 there's no festival. Details in the hot takes. The London Festival of American Music has landed the UK premiere of As One, Laura Kaminsky's chamber opera about the journey of a transgender woman. Festival director and friend of the show, Odaline de la Martinez, also known as Chachi, conducts the Lontano Ensemble in four performances this September. In trade news, the Spoleto Festival has appointed Mena Mark Hanna as its new general director. He was previously at Berlin's Berenboim Said Academy, where he was the founding dean and professor of musicology and composition. He also served as our 
excuse me, assistant artistic director at Houston Grand Opera. On the disabled list, after testing positive for COVID, mezzo-soprano Ekaterina Semenchuk has canceled her upcoming performances of three principal roles at the Marinsky Theater, as well as performances in Aida and Macbeth at the Bavarian State Opera, where she was slated to make her house debut. We wish her a speedy recovery. Exit stage right, English stage director Graham Vick has died of COVID complications at 67. As director of productions at Scottish Opera in the 1980s, he toured productions to remote communities. Then, after setting up a company in Birmingham, England in 1987, he staged operas in non-traditional venues, achieving lasting connections with local communities. The beloved language and diction coach Robert Cowart, or Bob Cowart, has died. He mentored generations of young singers both at Juilliard and in his role as vocal coach at the Metropolitan Opera since 1981, where he was also head of linguistic studies for the Lindemann program. He will be remembered for his gifts in bringing together text and singing and for his curiosity and kindness. Mezzo-soprano Jean Kraft has died. She sang 784 performances at the Met during her 20 seasons on the roster. A striking character actress, Kraft was a valuable member of the ensemble there in the 70s and 80s. The longtime leader of Aspen Music Festival's opera program, Edward Berkeley, has died. The company stated, quote, this was Ed's 40th summer with the festival and his contributions to the institution and to the young singers he nurtured in the program are immeasurable. He was beloved by so many, and his dry wit, dimensional productions, and coaching in signature knee socks will be deeply missed. And on this day, July 19, in 1842, the birth of Austrian operetta composer Karl Zeller. 1875, the first performance of Alfredo Catalani's La Falce in Milan. In 1920, the birth of baritone Alda Prati in Cremona. 1924, birth of soprano Amy Schuard in London. In 1935, the birth of tenor-turned-conductor Peter Schreier in Germany. Happy birthday to conductor Gerhard Schwartz, born this day in 1947. Another conductor celebrates his birthday, Carlo Rizzi, born in 1960. And one more OBS birthday greeting, English conductor Mark Wigglesworth, born in 1964. Lastly, for Weston, 2009, the first performance of Antonio Cagnoni's King Lear in Italy. And that's your two-minute drill. That was Jean Kraft with pianist David Garvey and a little Debussy, Beausoir, from the Town Hall concert, her debut in Town Hall uh, in 1969. Again, make sure that you subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher. You can even just favorite the show on Apple Podcasts. The New York Times rarely makes mistakes, but Oliver, this was rarely. (laughs) I mean, we probably should have read, or I should have read that article. It has to do with uh the orchestra members i guess holding out um i don't even know what the conclusion of this story is but i just stopped reading it because an institution like 
the New York Times distinct making a distinction between singers and instrumentalists as who are the musicians. It just pisses me off so much, and it happens all the time. Um, and I won't stand for it. So I stopped reading the article. <laughs> it's a mistake that people make. It's a mistake that I think as a director, you probably make only once. I definitely made that mistake early <laughs> in my career when I was like, all right, I need all the musicians over here and I need all the singers over there. And man, did I get some nasty looks. <laughs> a lot of apologies, a lot of beers bought as a uh, sorry there. Vaccine cards at the Met. I think we all knew that the federal government was not going to lay down the law and it was going to come down to independent companies, corporations, businesses, airlines to set their own policies to get this nation vaccinated. And the Met has got on that train. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, how they're actually going to manage it. I mean, like, is that is the usher are the ushers or the people at the door going to like look at your vaccine cards or is it going to be at the point of sale when you buy your ticket? Um, that's going to be pretty sticky. And I'm sure that there are some people who attend the opera who are like libertarians and maybe even anti-vaxxers. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how they deal with it or how we all deal with this coming in the fall, you know, the social contract is being rewritten yet again. I mean, I do think it has to happen at the point of sale. Having worked in a box office, what you want is when everyone's subscribing is they just put in a copy of their vaccination card and then they can just show up and just go to their seats. But yeah, otherwise there's huge lines at the box office while you're fumbling for your card and then you're trying to make sure they can see it. The larger point, as you say, Oliver, is like where where does this lead in opera in our lives in general in terms of um, the stratification of society the uh, uh, you know the haves and the have-nots how is it going to play out right and like people already think of opera as like this elite and we're pretentious and whatnot and is this just another way to create a division in the culture you know where they can go on foxes and say you know well the opera doesn't want us to come so we won't come take your money out of the opera you know. <laughs> dad <laughs> well and and the opera sort of already struggles with these um elitist uh archetypes whether they are true or not so a friend um, of the show afton battle you know when we talked to her two years ago basically she did talk about you know bringing the opera into the real community and this is really her first season with being able to do live performance and she's she's sticking to her guns i mean uh there's a lot of concerts here there's a lot of children's opera uh, specifically targeting the Hispanic community. Uh, there's also a show called A Night of Black Excellence featuring <laughs> Karen Slack. Um, I don't know if Afton Battle's going to sing in that one, but, you know, she is also Black Excellence, so we'll see. Uh, they are doing some operas. They're doing a world premiere of Zorro, which I think is postponed from a previous season, uh, and that is by composer and librettist Hector Armienta. There seems to be a tie in there with some sort of pro rodeo, which I don't quite understand, but want to go to. Okay. And then the other actual opera they're doing is going to be Traviata. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, I think the thing that's very notable here is that they're out of the festival uh, format and into more of a stagione format, you know. Absolutely. So two shows were cut from the season. And this is so telling about Afton Battles Fort Worth is that those two shows were not world premieres. They were not one night only things. They were Boehm 
and Flatermouse. And when you look at this Stagione list, is it's, it's a lot of one-night events or two performances of Traviata. So there's a way that this company is going, I would argue broad and not deep, and they're just doing a, a real long list of performances, just one thing at a time to really, it's like greater surface area, basically, is how I like to think about it. But one of the diversity shows, uh, Gabriela Elena Franks, Last Year Mafrida and Diego is being postponed for a future date. They, they say that it's continuing to be developed. It was going to be a world premiere, uh, a co-commission with San Diego Opera. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Gabriela Elena Frank uh, as a composer, and I hope that, that uh, we see that uh, in a future season because that was a really cool idea to do a show about Frida and Diego. The uh, exit stage right was quite Oof, full this week. What a week. Oh. I mean, my, you know, social media um, was just exploding with all of these tributes and like people just being shocked that all of these people died also close to each other. Um, Bob Coward and Ed Berkeley, particularly, I did not know them, but yeah, my Facebook feed especially is just flooded with all of these tributes to them. And so if you are in the singer community, and I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. So uh, yeah, we do what we can here to honor them. I mean, we weren't, I was I never went to any of those programs, so I have no personal experience. But you have experience with Grand Vic, I want to say. I, I do, very, very tangentially. Um, there are very few directors that um, I've really looked up to and been kind of enamored with uh, and been totally crushed when they passed away. Jonathan Miller was one of those directors who died a couple years ago. Graham Vick would be one of those directors. Here's what was so brilliant about Graham Vick. Started at Scottish Opera and immediately latched onto this idea that opera needed to connect with its community. This was his quote. You do not need to be educated to be touched, to be moved and excited by opera. You only need to experience it directly at first hand with nothing getting in the way. And this principle he took to Birmingham, England's second city, if you will, in the late 80s when he founded the Birmingham Opera Company. This company defined what it was to connect opera with community to the point where one of their productions, which I, I saw, I think it was on DVD actually, uh, was Macbeth, um, Verdi Macbeth. And the, the community of Birmingham were essentially supernumeraries in chorus. He did it in a warehouse packed to the rafters of audience members, choristers, community members, and professional singers, of course. And there was somehow he, he got the community of Birmingham to, to fill these roles. And it was utterly overwhelming to watch that. The other thing I will say, back in the days when I was on Facebook before I crumpled up that piece of paper and tossed it in the recycling was uh, I uh, I saw Graham Vick on Facebook and I was like, okay, sure. Friend thinking nothing with every comment and he friended me right back, hmm. which I just thought was so marvelous. I mean, he didn't know me from Adam. I, I can't imagine he knew my work he at all. He just loved your little mustache. Something, something like that. <laughs> Graham Vick, rest in peace. Let's wrap this show up. Good call. Bad call on Opera Box Score. Good call, bad call. Uh, we'll go to Weston first on that one. So, first good call, <laughs> Weston. <laughs> Weston, what? 
Oh, man, the one time I throw it over to Weston and he doesn't even... God, that guy's just so typical. Oliver, what do you got? Um, good call to Santa Fe Opera. Um, they just had their prima of a world premiere, Lord of Cries, by the husband uh, composer librettist team of John Corleone and Mark Adamo. Uh, and the show stars friend of the show, Anthony Roth Costanzo, and is directed by friend of the show, James Dara. So that happened over the weekend. And uh, I am actually going to head out to Santa Fe. Uh, and I've already received wonderful hospitality from the people at Santa Fe Opera. So I'm looking forward to being there next <laughs> month. Uh, and shout out to first year apprentice soprano Catherine Henry, who replaces Susanna Phillips withdrawing from the production for personal reasons. That's the same production for, for yes. Lord of Cries. Yes. Awesome title. That is it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. He's at normwaddell.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at Opera Box Score. Help us deepen that bench of listeners by liking and sharing our social media posts. Email us your hot takes at operaboxscore at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher. Just favorite the show on Apple Podcasts. The views and opinions expressed on Opera Box Score are solely those of the show's creative team. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of the accounts of this show without the express written consent of Opera Box Score is. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio and video editor is Weston Williams. I'm George Cedarquist. Along with our guests tonight, Eric Smith and Miguel Cantu, asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you make lists of operas without roles for baritones. We're back with an all-new show next week where we're going to try to get James Dara on the show. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more co-hosts, we think. Join us.